Section 20 of The Spirit of American Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. The Spirit of American Literature by John Albert Macy. Section 20. Lanier. Three volumes of unimpeachable poetry have been written in America. Leaves of Grass, the thin volume of Poe, and the poetry of Sidney Lanier. It is treading on treacherous negatives to say that there is not a fourth fit for their society. Yet I believe that to make an adequate fourth, one would have to assemble in an anthology the finest poems from lesser lyrists, beginning perhaps with Bryant's Waterfowl, and including, if not ending with, the remarkable poems published only last year. The Singing Man by Josephine Preston Peabody, Mrs. Marks. And a beautiful book that anthology would be, for it would contain Frenot's Wild Honeysuckle, Parsons on a Bust of Dante, and Dirge for One Who Fell in Battle, Timrod's Cotton Bowl, Stedman's John Brown and Helen Keller, Aldrich's Fredericksburg and Identity, Sills' The Fool's Prayer, Gilder's Sonnet on the Life Mask of Lincoln, a score of marvellous little poems by Father Tabb, James Whitcomb Riley's South Wind and the Sun, Emma Lazarus's Venus of the Louvre, L. F. Tucker's The Last Fight, a dozen lyrics of Richard Hovey, William Vaughan Moody's Gloucester Moors, four or five poems by Edwin Arlington Robinson, and some other verse drawn from the younger rather than the elder poets. Surely, it would be a fragrant cluster from many gardens whose beauty is a splendid and consoling denial that the race of singers is dead or shall ever die till man dies. If this anthology made of poets who are somewhat invidiously and with wavering justice of phrase called minor were ranked on our shelves with the complete works of American poets, what single light could shine undiminished by the rivalry of the chosen cluster of perfection? Not Longfellow, nor Whittier, nor Holmes, nor Lowell, but only these three, Poe, Whitman, Lanier. Lanier was a poet, always, continuously, even in his juvenile verses, and his genius was unerringly self-recognized before the bitter exigencies of his life permitted him to announce himself and to prove his modestly proud conviction. No poet's lot, except Poe's, ever fell in ruggeder places, no poet except Poe was so alone and self-directed. A letter written when he was thirty-three to Bayard Taylor set forth the aridity of his life. I could never describe to you what a mere drought and famine my life has been as regards that multitude of matters which I fancy one absorbs when one is in the atmosphere of art or when one is in conversational relation with men of letters, with travellers, with persons who have either seen or written or done large things. Perhaps you know that, with us of the younger generations in the South since the war, pretty much the whole of life has been merely not dying. To his father he writes, My dear father, think how for twenty years, through poverty, through pain, through weariness, through sickness, through the uncongenial atmosphere of a farcical college, and of a bare army, and then of an exacting business life, through all the discouragement of being wholly unacquainted with literary people and literary ways, I say, think how, 
in spite of all these depressing circumstances and of a thousand more which i could enumerate these two figures of music and poetry have steadily kept in my heart so that i could not banish them these letters are a sad commentary on america not that poets have not been lonely and discouraged in other countries for they not only reveal a war wasted south but remind us how very little lanier missed at that date in not being associated with men of letters of new york and new england the man he writes to like an outsider yearning for good company is bayard taylor a first-rate man but a fourth-rate literature the friendliness of baltimore finally gave him much that he needed and wonder of wonders johns hopkins university made him instructor in literature the new young college thought a true poet worthy to teach literature and help a true poet to live lanier flourished alone and taught himself all that he knew of books and poetry indeed he learned without a teacher to play the flute so well that he could support himself by playing in the orchestra at baltimore and was pronounced by professional musicians a distinguished player in a somewhat florid but evidently sincere memorial the leader of the orchestra said i will never forget the impression he made on me when he played the flute concerto of emil hartmann at a peabody symphony concert in eighteen seventy eight his tall handsome manly presence his flute breathing noble sorrows noble joys the orchestra softly responding the audience was spellbound such distinction such refinement he stood the master the genius and he had never had a lesson in music when he died at thirty-nine he had made himself a technically excellent musician within ten years for his literary life had scarcely begun before he was thirty he had fitted himself to give lectures on the english novel shakespeare and old english poets he had written the most original treatise in existence on english verse equalled so far as i know that kind of literature only by the studies of poe and coleridge and he was the unapproachably best american poet of his generation if ever there was a born genius since keats it was lanier let there be no sentimentalizing over him for he was a man of humor he spoke always of his difficulties in a manly fashion and when death strides into his pages it is an honest figure and not a personification of the tuberculosis against which the poet fought to victorious defeat but if ever lamentation for a poet's death be justifiable there may well be a cry of pain for the unfinished hymns of the marshes his voice was growing greater when he ceased to sing and like keats his angel's tongue lost half the sweetest song was ever sung he bided his time he wrote little verse he studied all aspects of his art intensely patiently with a religious conscience how sure and strong in his growth is wonderfully shown by comparing the two following poems the first written when he was twenty-four and not published by him and the second written ten years later a perfect lyric night fair is the wedded rain of night and day each rules a half of earth with different sway exchanging kingdoms east and west alway like the round pearl that egypt drunk in wine the sun half sinks in the brimming rosy brine the wild night drinks all up how her eyes shine evening song look off dear love across the sallow sands and mark you meeting of the sun and sea 
how long they kiss in sight of all the lands ah longer longer we now in the sea's red vintage melts the sun as egypt's pearl dissolved in rosy wine and cleopatra night drinks all tis done love lay thine hand in mine come forth sweet stars and comfort heaven's heart glimmer ye waves round else unlighted sands o night divorce our sun and sky apart never our lips our hands yet it is not for what he might have done but for what he did that the impartial assessment of time will sum his merits it is humane to remember that he wrote sunrise the year before he died when he was too ill to eat and his temperature was at one hundred and four then it is well to remove all the cross lights of biography and stand face to face with a sunrise a poem magnificent in conception perfect in workmanship ultimate poetry the following lines are the close of the poem good morrow lord sun with several voice with ascription one the woods and the marsh and the sea and my soul unto thee whence the glittering stream of all morrows doth roll cry good and past good and most heavenly morrow lord sun o artisan born in the purple workman heat parter of passionate atoms that travail to meet and be mixed in the death-cold oneness innermost guest at the marriage of elements fellow of publicans blessed king in the blouse of flame that loiterest o'er the idle skies yet laborest fast evermore thou in the fine forge thunder thou in the heat of the heart of man thou motive laborer heat yea artist thou of whose art you seize all news with his inshore greens and manifold mid-sea blues pearl glint shell tint ancientest perfectest hues ever shaming the maidens lily and rose confess thee and each mild flame that glows in the clarified virginal bosoms of stones that shine it is thine it is thine thou chemist of storms whether driving the winds a swirl or a flicker the subtiler essences polar that whirl in the magnet earth yea thou with a storm for a heart rent with debate many spotted with question part from part oft sundered yet ever a globed light yet ever the artist ever more large and bright than the eye of man may wail off manifold one i must pass from thy face i must pass from the face of the sun old want is awake and a gag every wrinkle a frown the worker must pass to his work in the terrible town but i fear not nay and i fear not in the thing to be done i am strong with the strength of my lord the sun how dark how dark soever the race that needs be run i am lit with the sun o oh, never the mast high run of the seas of traffic shall hide thee never the hell-coloured smoke of the factories hide thee never the reek of time's fen politics hide thee and ever my heart through the night shall with knowledge abide thee and ever by day shall my spirit as one that hath tried thee labour at leisure in art till yonder beside thee my soul shall float friend son the day being done a blood brother to lanier's sunrise is francis thompson's ode to the setting sun 
and I know not a third which is so closely its kin. These poems have much in common, opulence, splendor of metaphor, and an amazing virtuosity in metrical matters, which in turn allies them with Swinburne, from whom in thought they are, however, as remote as poets can be. If Thomson did not know the poems of Lanier, it is a case of predetermined affinities which the accidents of circumstance cheated off the earthly fulfillment of meeting. Have they some common earlier master that I do not know? Or is the identity of these powerful metaphors less striking than I find it? Thompson, whether man's heart or life it be which yields thee harvest, must thy harvest fields be dunged with rotten death? Lanier, mulched with unsavory death, gross soul unto such white estate, that virginal prayerful art shall be thy breath, thy work, thy fate. One other resemblance resides in their work, in their convictions. The fresh vigor they have given to the symbols of Christianity, which had well-nigh perished out of modern poetry, blighted by the ugliness of sincere but graceless hymn-writers, and other devotees whom the pagan muses had abandoned in despair, and both used the symbols rather for their beauty than for their religious import. To say at once the worst that can be said of either of them, both Thompson and Lanier are subject to the same temptation, or they are driven to the brink of the same danger, and both triumphantly avoid falling into the abyss where poetry ceases and mere metricism begins. They are both so abundant in fancy and overflooded with metaphors, and withal so adept at playing with measures, that now and again their exuberance and nimbleness almost betray them. But because they are both austere artists and passionately intend what they say, they are saved. It is a danger merely, and they tremble on the verge of it. One would gladly strike out of Thompson the two visibly crafty rhymes of such a poem as To the Dead Cardinal. Strange subject for him to spoil with conceited, fantastic versifying. And one would as gladly prune out some of Lanier's internal rhyming and obvious assonances. In both poets, who are in the main steadied by the solid burden of thought they carry so highly on the breast of a song, the fault is due to an intoxication from the sound of words. The best of the Elizabethan and seventeenth-century poets of England were not free from the fantastic, which is a greater pleasure to the skilful verse-maker than any but poets realize. In the nineteenth century, Swinburne, in the very ecstasy of making new meters and reviving old ones, flies sometimes on dizzy and purposeless wings. And it may be that the younger poets, Lanier and Thompson, learn from him his less admirable as well as his most admirable lessons in prosody. However, they sin but little, and, this is the all-immortalizing distinction, they sin as poets, not as versifiers. That Lanier was a musician as well as a poet, is there any other professional musician in English poetry? And that he expressed his theory in the science of English verse, are facts caught at too eagerly by those who would account for some of his most evidently musical arrangements of words. The truth about him, as about all artists, is that his theory followed his art. He was a poet first and a student, or rather a professor of technique afterward. His theory of verse merely codifies, with such technical knowledge as only a musician has, the fact which all poets instinctively know and all true poetry exemplifies that poetry is, in half its nature, music, and that it consists not of spoken words, but of chanted words. Professional students of prosody 
who are not poets, and most are not, have applied to ancient and modern poetry a kind of visual mathematics, and they discourse of Greek measure and English as if they were quite different things. But their laws are precisely the same. They are oral laws determined by the human ear, which is pleased or offended musically by all verse, Greek, French, English, or South Sea Island. There is only one law for all music and for all poetry, independent of the explicit meaning necessarily resident in human words. And that law is, if it sounds right, it is right. The counting of feet is superfluous. If they are to be counted at all, Lanier's way is the way to count. The principles he expounds were known to the ear that first heard Homer. Lanier's verse, being true to English poetry, to the effects of English words on the ear, would probably have been what it is if he had never been an instructor and a technically capable musician and had never expounded his principles. Indeed, if he had been free to write poetry, he would not have written The Science of English Verse. A professor cannot earn his salary by reading original poetry to a class, but he can earn it by lecturing on the science of verse. All true artists know the grammar of their art thoroughly not merely with such practitioner's knowledge as a carpenter has of geometry, but with the highest kind of theoretic intelligence, for artists have the best human minds and are the final speculators about the laws which they obey. Any great novelist could take a month off and write a book about the art of fiction, but few novelists put themselves to so much trouble, because they are busy writing novels, and therefore the making of books of theory is left in the less capable hands of critics who would fain be literary men, but cannot, to save their souls, write novels. Wagner has not the time to write a schoolmaster's treatise on harmony, and such a treatise would probably bore Chopin to tears. Lanier is not more theoretic than other poets. He was simply so circumstanced that to keep his head up as a lecturer, he made a book about poetry when he would unquestionably have preferred to give his energy to writing poetry. All modern poets have been overwhelmed by the beauty of ancient poets. They have fed on the classics, sometimes assimilating them so thoroughly as to build new tissue of the divine nutriment, sometimes, far too often, trailing an undigested pseudo-classicism across their pages. The very modern poets have at once a double resource and a double burden, for they have both the very ancient poets and the tremendous body of poetry in living languages on which to feed and by which to kill themselves. It is a very striking quality of Lanier that he thoroughly assimilates his masters. He does not mix Shakespeare with Lanier, but renews a Shakespearean phrase, treating the Elizabethan as a great thing in nature, from which to draw metaphors. To put it another way, he does not lean upon Shakespeare. He does not merely reflect a moonlit beauty from great poets like those rhymesters who get a kind of borrowed sweetness into their work by writing sonnets to Shelley. Lanier's Shakespearean metaphors sound poetic and not bookish. Old Hill, Old Hill, thou gashed and hairy leer, whom the divine Cordelia of the year, e'en pitying spring, will vainly strive to cheer. Again of the mocking bird, which Lanier by a splendid revolt has finally put on his rightful seat, supplanting the European tyrants, Nightingale and Skylark. How may the death of the dull insect be? The life of you trim Shakespeare on the tree. If haply thou, O Desdemona, mourn, shouldst call along the curving sphere, 
Remain, dear night, sweet moor. Over the monstrous shambling sea, over the Caliban sea, bright aerial cloud, thou lingerest. O oh, wait, O, oh, wait in the warm red west, thy Prospero I'll be. Selection does him wrong by false emphasis, and the foregoing may give the impression that he is overfond of literary illusion. But the quotations I give are all there, are of the kind. The purpose of quoting them is to suggest that Lanier was in a sense a fresh unschooled discoverer of the poets they did not become stale with classroom familiarity while he was young he loved them as part of nature as keats discovered and loved chapman and spencer how far he was from abject worship of his poet heroes is shown in the crystal in which is wrought out with telling phrases that are marvels of criticism the bold and refreshing idea that all the masters of song shakespeare homer dante have much to be forgiven. That is a great poem in which a poet adequately praises another, in which he does not droop upon a greater strength, but stands, for one song's duration at least, the equal of his adored. Such poem is that To Our Mocking Bird, where the bird and Keats are identified and the cat and death are rebuked together. Lanier, like all his race of poets, sang praises to his fathers in melody. Yet he does not smell of the library. He is a poet of nature and of things, of the meaning of central present things that harry and strengthen the heart of man. In corn, for once an American poet strode into our splendid native golden fields and sang what his eyes saw, and deeper, what the harvests of the fields can be for man. The symphony, in which the instruments he knew so well are soundingly suggested, is no mere interplay of melodies, but the cry of the old new spirit of brotherhood against the debauchery of trade. By it Lanier becomes one of the goodly band of modern men dissatisfied with man's violations of man, and his voice is strong enough to admit him to the still smaller band of poets, who are the voices of the present life, of these very times, with Morris and Whitman, whom, alas, he did not like. Oddly, he, the devotee of pure music, dared the historic theme which so many Americans have tried, ever since the absurd columbiads of the early years of the nation and in the psalm of the west he did make a chant of america and freedom which has in its short compass something like epic vision and is if not the noblest of lanier far above most patriotic verse and artistically excellent lanier stands alone in that era of american poetry which is chiefly marked by a false post tennysonism an era of nicely made lyrics that have neither passion nor an individual sense of beauty. There are today signs of something better, nay, distinguished specimens of something better, in such works as Mrs. Mark's The Singing Man, which is a pleasure to name again, and in Mr. R. H. Schoffler's Scum of the Earth. If Lanier had no equal contemporaries, he may have successors, for when an age is shuddering on its first grey verge, and its day facts lie in the future, it is permitted to be hopeful for it. Biographical Note Sidney Lanier was born at Macon, Georgia, February 3, 1842. He died at Lynn, North Carolina, September 7, 1881. He learned as a boy to play several musical instruments, which, instead of delighting his friends and parents, alarmed them. At the age of 18, he graduated from Oglethorpe College, a Presbyterian institution in Georgia, which he later called farcical. 
in april eighteen hundred and sixty one he enlisted in the confederate army and served through the war it is a picturesque fact that he carried his flute with him through battle and imprisonment the war broke his health and he was never afterward free from consumption until eighteen seventy two he was in business and in the practice of law in eighteen seventy three he settled in baltimore and supported himself as flute player in the peabody orchestra he lived the rest of his life in baltimore except for vain excursions in quest of health some public lectures on literature and some of his poems brought him to the notice of president d c gilman who appointed him lecturer on english literature at johns hopkins university in eighteen sixty seven he married mary day his books are tiger lilies a novel eighteen sixty seven florida its scenery history and climate eighteen seventy six poems eighteen seventy six the boys froissart eighteen seventy eight the science of english verse eighteen eighty the boys king arthur eighteen eighty the boys mabinogion eighteen eighty one the boys percy eighteen eighty two the english novel and the principles of its development eighteen eighty three poems eighteen eighty four eighteen ninety one letters eighteen ninety nine shakespeare and his forerunners nineteen hundred and two poem outlines nineteen hundred and eight the life of lanier in american man of letters is by edward mims end of section twenty read for you by chiquito crasto birmingham alabama